Hello and welcome to episode 6 of The Theologian's Table. My name is Tim and I am your host. This episode is the last part of a series I'm calling The Dark Mirror. For this podcast overall, I'd like you to think that you're taking an intro to Christian theology course, but at someone's dining room table. It's my table, so to speak, but my role is to serve you and offer as much as I can on the subject in about 30 to 45 minutes. Also, if you're looking at your device and you see episodes with the letter A next to them, that just means that they were episodes from my old podcast. And I also think that there is the old artwork there, so you'll be able to differentiate better. And hey, do you have a big pile of cash just lying around? Are you asking yourself, gee, what can I do with all this money? Well, have I got a deal for you. Why not become a patron for this podcast? I've revamped the Patreon page just to have one tier, which I call the Anchor tier. After Patreon and the government take their dues, it would average to be about five bucks a month on my end. But believe it or not, that goes a long way. There are, of course, perks that go along with that. And you can find the link in the description of this episode. But you know what? I realize that times are tough. Uh, We've got this COVID-19 crap going on and a lot of people have maybe been laid off or don't have enough earnings to become a patron. So what would really help me out also is to rate this podcast if you can. And then to also share it on your social media accounts, whether you love the show or you hate it and you want to criticize it or you just like it just a little teensy weensy bit. All right. So let's let's buckle up because we got a lot of ground to cover in this episode. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life and new civilizations. To boldly go where no one has gone before. I love Star Trek, especially the next generation. It really captured my attention and imagination at four years old when it first aired on TV. In fact, my parents, they also loved it, and they had a Star Trek fan club with a few people from church. And they wouldn't let me join at first, but when I built a a model of the Starship Enterprise out of Legos, they let me join. I mean, why? how could you not, right? (laughs) When I was 10, I went to my first convention uh, at a Ramada hotel. All right, good grief. Uh, where it the, the special guest there was Brent Spiner, who plays Data, the android, who who's a character that is always aspiring to be human. As I grew, the love of that particular iteration of Star Trek stayed with me, and I was fortunate enough to meet some people in college who loved it just as much as I did. It's probably stereotypical of me, but my favorite character in college and even up to now is Captain Picard because of his love for exploring and studying the cultures of beings from all over the galaxy. He's a very erudite man who loves poetry. He loves classical music and detective stories. He's probably what I would consider my male wish 
fulfillment character to be. Uh, what I really love about Star Trek is its optimism about the far future, that it, it even has a far future in the first place, and that humanity gets to explore the cosmos and work with other races to live peacefully. Uh, even though there, there was a lot of conflict with the Federation between the Borg and the Cardassians and the Founders and the Romulans and all that, it's still, in my opinion, a hopeful show, and I think anybody who watches it would agree with that. But growing up in the church, hope looked a little differently. We didn't have that vision of the far future. We placed our hope in God rapturing us out of this world and into heaven before the rest of the world experienced a whole bunch of tribulations that would ultimately lead to the destruction of the world. This is something that is called the premillennial rapture that is part of a theological interpretation called dispensationalism. You'll be hearing that word a lot. Well, this didn't leave me with a lot of hope. And to me, it gave off this vindictive attitude for others, uh, towards others, almost akin to saying, you had your chance, or this is what you get. And I think that that is an odd sentiment for Christians to have, because God calls us to love and care for the other, even if they are the polar opposite of us. So the vindictive attitude of this secret rapture belief isn't really indicative of what the character of a Christian should be because it doesn't really reflect God's character very well. In fact, it only portrays his wrath, in my opinion. Well, there's more to God than wrath, and I believe that his love outweighs his wrath. So I was putting less of my hope in what the Bible was saying about the future and secretly hoping and wishing that maybe the future doesn't have to be as bad as preachers say it will be, And I was hoping that there was a chance that it could look like the secular science fiction show created by Gene Roddenberry. But I had just been saturated by what Christians were saying and what Christian media said and what pastors were teaching. And it it just kind of made me angry with God. Why would God choose to leave the world without hope? You know, Christians are supposed to represent hope because we we are supposed to represent Christ, who is the hope. Uh, and salvation of the world. It wasn't until my mid-20s, a little over 10 years ago, where I had started to see some pushback by Christian pastors about this whole end-time scenario that was supposed to happen. One of the first people that I can remember doing this in my context was a pastor and theologian named Greg Boyd. In fact, he preached a series of sermons, which I believe it was called Rescuing Revelation, that talked about extremely popular misconceptions and interpretations about the book of Revelation. Then I attended college for my undergrad degree, a Pentecostal school, no less. I learned that the idea of a secret rapture was part of dispensationalism, only to find out that dispensationalism was a relatively recent creation. This means a lot of what we here in America have believed about our eschatology as Christians for the last 100 to 150 years or so had not been taught in the first 1800 years of Christianity. So in this episode, I'm going to lay out a brief history of how dispensationalism really got started and how it became so popular, 
Then I'm going to tackle a couple of passages that are said to support this belief in the rapture and offer why it's not a good reading of the Bible. And then I'm going to talk about passages that are eschatological, meaning they they concern Christ's return, and why, and, and then try to show the importance of how they can help us think about the past, present, and future. So here's a brief history of dispensationalism. Sometime in the 1820s or so, there was a revival in Glasgow, Scotland, where a young girl had a vision that God was going to rapture the church out of this world and into heaven before the events that will signal the end of the world. At this meeting was a minister named John Nelson Darby, who was really impacted by what this girl claimed to see. He then taught a system of interpretation called dispensationalism, which included this pre-tribulation secret rapture and started teaching it in the United Kingdom. After the Civil War here in the States, uh, Darby traveled to the United States and to try to get support and numbers for a new denomination he wanted to create called the Plymouth Brethren. And he also preached his message of dispensationalism. He met with Christian, very important Christian lay leaders who had an immensely large following in conservative revivalistic movements such as D.L. Moody. They didn't lend support to his new denomination, but they were really big fans of his dispensationalist interpretation of the Bible and the end times. But it's really Moody that is credited with spreading the dispensationalist view of the secret rapture all over the United States. In fact, he even uh, had influence overseas as well. Other Christian leaders also began teaching it, including those who were starting up Bible institutes such as Biola, which is in L.A., and then also Dallas Theological Seminary uh, started with dispensationalism as a core part of their educational curriculum. And what's interesting to note is I also read that it was more popular among the lay people of the church, the lay leaders, and it didn't really have a lot of support from uh, conservative Christian leaders in un- in the university. And in fact, I think it was Hodge that kind of, uh, he didn't really accept dispensationalism. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Anyway, what really seemed to cement, cement it, though, was C.I. Schofield's reference Bible. It had a bunch of uh, reference verses thought to have supported dispensationalism and the secret pre-tribulation rapture. But he added headings before certain passages like Jesus predicts the rapture. And then he had commentary in his footnotes uh, teaching on it. So people can say, well, look, it's right here in my Bible. So because dispensationalism was running in conservative Christian revivalistic circles, it picked up support of those who held that Princetonian view of the authority and inspiration of scripture, which is something I talked about in the Academy versus the Church series, which the first episodes uh, of this podcast. Both camps relied heavily on Baconism and common sense realism reading of the Bible, which they believe gave them scientific clout and along with the supernatural clout of scripture having its origin in God. 
it gave them the sense that their theology was unquestionable and extremely orthodox. And we have been saturated with it really ever, ever since then. So here's what dispensationalism teaches. It's more than just about a secret rapture. And I want to briefly cover that. Basically, it's a theology that teaches how God deals with humanity. In it, history is split up into ages. And in each age, God is testing the obedience of his creations uh, to some specific revelation of his will. When humans fail to follow the will of God, he brings a cataclysmic judgment upon them. And, and that judgment ends one dispensation and starts a new one. So in the next dispensation, God does the same thing. I think it's supposed to be human so that humanity can learn a lesson. But if dispensations keep happening, it seems here that God keeps, if God keeps doing it, then it's really him who hasn't learned the lesson since humanity obviously keeps failing. And what's the definition of insanity again? Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result? Yikes. Anyways, this was used as a way to in interpret historical changes in the history of humanity. And since this view came about when conservative Christians were battling the modernist views of history espoused by the more liberal-leaning academy, Christians really took hold of it. Dispensationalism, especially premillennial dispensationalism, say that five times fast, I don't think I could do it in three. Uh, anyways, it also has a very wooden and strict interpretation of Old Testament prophecy that its prophecy will be fulfilled exactly as the text says, and it does not allow for other methods of interpretation. They also taught and sometimes still teach that God has two separate plans for the church in Israel. So the Jews are God's earthly chosen people, and the church is God's spiritual people. In fact, the church only came into existence in this plan when the Jews rejected Jesus even though the Bible says that many Jews accepted Christ. And therefore, a new dispensation came into being, which is the age of the church or the age of grace. And this age's concern is, is to evangelize the lost, which I think is good. But it, it, will, it will end with Jesus's return with those who have already been raptured uh, before the tribulation to establish the new Jerusalem and return the Jews to their land, which fulfills prophecy. The claim is that when scripture is rightly divided because of their literalistic and plain reading or plain meaning interpretation, one can easily understand God's plan. But you have to make sure that you have all the appropriate charts and a dispensationalist teacher in order for that to happen. Not so simple after all, I guess. Uh, there is a lot more that dispensationalists teach, such as the Sermon on the Mount was meant for the age after the church, not, not this age, and that the Gospels and Epistles are an objective declaration of sin and forgiveness instead of teaching them as a way of, of Christian life. There's also some stuff about about how to teach the book of Daniel's eschatology. But honestly, that portion would take a really long time to cover. And if you want to know about it, it's in the book 
uh, that I can that I'll list at the end. Uh, as you can tell, it's a very pessimistic theology, and it creates a pessimistic view in those who holds who hold to its teachings. But its popularity among Christians is unbelievably high, and it has been made into a lucrative venture in Christian media and for would-be prophets. So let's get into some of the the verses or the proof texts that are supposed to teach the rapture. One of the most popular appeals to scripture in support of the rapture is Matthew 24, uh, 40 through 44, which says, Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake. Therefore, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. This passage, though, is not often taught in the context to the verses that come before it, where Jesus retells the story of Noah, where God wipes away humanity. But Noah, who is righteous, is spared with his family. So in the context, it means that it is a good thing to be left behind and not taken away, because those taken away in the story of the flood were destroyed in judgment. So as Jesus is teaching about what the return of the Son of Man will be like, he says you want to be like Noah. You do, in fact, want to be left behind. Another core passage supposedly supporting the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-18, where Paul states, For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and the sound of the trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. But Paul, though, is writing to the Thessalonians who had members of their church die from some type of persecution, and the members who are living are worried that those who have passed away are going to miss out on the blessings that come when Christ returns. So Paul is attempting to comfort the people of this church about that issue. He's telling the church that when Christ does return, this is what will happen. Those dead in Christ will rise up and the living will join with Jesus in the air. But the air doesn't mean heaven here. There's a couple explanations of what that means. The first is that the living in Christ are the welcoming committee for Jesus who we go up to meet, but the destination is not up in the clouds or spirited away away into heaven. The destination is always the earth because Christ is descending from heaven. Additionally, Paul is always going to speak in terms his audience is going to understand. And it's our job here in this century to try and determine what that would mean in the first century context. But his terms have all the hallmarks of what a royal return would look like. And it also calls upon imagery from Daniel and Moses. So 
in that age and Paul's age, when a king returns, and even in the Old Testament, those stationed on the wall, the the lookouts, they blow a trumpet to announce the king and his arrival. So think of Psalm 24. Once the citizens of the city know that it is the king arriving back to his city, the protocol is to send out the committee to welcome the triumphant king. And then they always go back into the city where the king will usher in justice and peace for his people. The part about getting caught up into a cloud, into the clouds is also a reference to Daniel 7, which vindicates those who have suffered on behalf of the king and how they get to be seated with God. And it goes back to that imperial imagery as well. When the committee, when the committee goes out to greet the king, they would be surrounded and enveloped by all the dust that the king's chariot and his entourage would have kicked up. It would be a big entourage. So these images are something that the Thessalonians would have understand if, if say, if they were uh, a Jewish follower of Christ, they would have understand the mosaic imagery and Daniel's imagery. And if they were Gentile believers in Christ, they would have understood the, the royal imperial imagery. So uh, that is what Paul is saying that it might be like in, while he's mixing all of these metaphors. And there's really no element of Paul teaching anything about the rapture here. The last passage I want to talk about that is central to rapture theology is Revelation 4, 1 through 2, where John, who was at that time on the island of Patmos, writes about his vision saying, After I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after all this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. So to those who teach the rapture, uh, they would say that John is having a rapture experience. But most of the genre of John though, is an apocalyptic vision. Apocalypse meaning to reveal, and the vision, of course, is seeing that revelation. So scholars would say that when you alter the genre of a biblical text, you alter its meaning, which is what a rapture teaching would do. It would alter its meaning. John is having a vision, as he has several throughout the book, but he's not being physically relocated to have it. So you need to get the genre of the book right before you can get close to the meaning the author wants the reader to understand. To teach that a pre-tribulation rapture will happen is not only outside 1800 years of Christian teaching, it can also have other consequences. For example, if believers are going to get raptured up into heaven, and live there, then whoever is running the show on earth can do whatever they want. The Apostle Paul, though, many times in his letter, in a, in a lot of his letters, is always trying to help Christians understand that it's Jesus that Lord and Caesar is not. So there's a political element to our Christianity that we need to live out on earth. You could even bring up an ecological context. If you believe that God is good and gives good gifts, why would you not be concerned about the treatment of the earth 
since it was given to us by him. Our rapture would theology would do damage to that. And instead of uh, restoring the earth, bringing it into a new creation, it just destroys the earth. If a rapture isn't going to happen, what will Christ's return look like? The purpose of the argument wasn't that we couldn't appeal to scripture. It's just that we can't throw out an entirety of 18 years of theological teaching for what we prefer. I think appealing to scripture is, of course, the first thing that we should do, but we should try looking in the right places, places that we've forgotten about, and then determine what the author means. So let's do that. And originally, I was just going to have you look up the passages that I give uh, and then pause this and come back to it. But then I realized, well, maybe somebody uh, is listening to this in the car and they can't do that. So I'm just we've got some scripture to go through and I'm going to read the first passage. It comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. So let's read. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. Okay, so this passage is used a ton at wedding ceremonies, and also, sensationalists, they weirdly use this passage to argue that what Paul is talking about is that completeness here means the canonization of the Bible. So charismatic gifts of the Spirit will cease after the Bible is canonized. But that's a reach at best. That's grasping at straws. What this passage is talking about is the coming of Christ. It's eschatological. And, the, and it's about the transformation of humanity when that happens. It will be like aging from a child into adulthood. The way we understand now and try to understand things in light of Christ's revelation is like looking through a dark mirror or a dim mirror or whatever your translation says. We do not see the true reflection of who Christ is even though Christ knows us perfectly. So there's this implication that we don't know Christ fully, but we don't even know ourselves fully. However, at Christ's coming, we will know ourselves fully, which can be interpreted as our glorified state. The things that we needed to get by, such as gifts of the Spirit, but even faith and hope, they pass away because they will be They'll, that'll all be realized once Jesus appears. And the only thing that matters after that is love. Here's the next passage I want to look at, and it comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 through, th 2 through 3, where he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, 
What we will be has not been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will become like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. So let's examine this passage. Again, we have another apostle telling us, even though believers are God's children, we don't know what that exactly looks like because we don't have the words that can describe it. Not even the author of this passage has those words. But he says that we will when Christ reveals himself. And that in and of itself is interesting because we see the Gospels reveal Christ. But in the Gospels, the people didn't recognize Jesus as the Christ. They only came to see that he was the Messiah. And the only ones that came to see that he was the Messiah were those who believed that his miracles and what he said were given to him by the authority of, of God. And they had to exercise faith in that. Who Christ truly is, fully man, fully God, and all of those titles given to him were not revealed to us when Jesus walked the earth. And so faith was needed. We exercise our faith and hope that Jesus is the Christ because of what the Bible, uh, the Holy Spirit of God testified to. But when Jesus reveals himself at his return, what we know of him and ourselves will be transformed into who we actually are. And that is a purity that we just don't understand yet. So let's go to the next one. It's Colossians 3, 1 through 4. It says, So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things on earth. For, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Okay, I think by now you get where I'm going with this. As humans are now, we are looking into a dark mirror. We cannot see the image in detail. Christ's return transforms that. It transforms us because our identity is in him and in nothing else. So even though the New Testament reveals Jesus to us, he's still in a sense hidden. And so he's hidden but not secret. So don't interpret some kind of Gnostic baloney into the, what I'm saying here. But I submit that this is a biblical view of Christ's return. This is what will happen and not some rapture. This transformation or glorification is not, all, is not just physical. The apostles imply that it will be holistic in nature. Remember, Paul says, fully known. And so I and others before me think that the things and concepts we try to grasp at now and the structures that confine us like time and space will be totally reworked. Which leads me to my next point. I have tried to avoid using terminology like the end because a lot of times when we think about Christ's return, we put it on the timeline as an end point, which just marks a new point in time where time lasts forever. If we are to come into a, into a transformational understanding of who we are and what we know when Christ reveals himself as he truly is, then maybe how we think about 
time now is a product of not fully knowing. We think about time because we are mortal and we, you know, we create all these medical and pharmaceutical treatments just so that we can have a little bit more time. Time is very linear to us and it confines us. Time and space answer to God, though. He doesn't operate in the same kind of power structures that we do. Just like the temple in the Old Testament could not contain God, time and space cannot contain him either. Look at Matthew 22 when the Sadducees try to corner Jesus about the resurrection. I think it starts in verse 23. They use, a mar- they use marriage as a way to trap him by coming up with a riddle about who will be the woman's husband in the resurrection after having been married seven times. I can only imagine Jesus wearing his most lethal, unimpressed look on his face like uh, you schmucks. So he says, you're wrong, meaning they're thinking about it all wrong. And he continues, you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God. That is a powerful indictment towards these supposed experts in the word of God. So Jesus takes them both marriage and the resurrection and he he says as for resurrection of the dead have you not read what was said to you by god i am the god of abraham the god of isaac and the god of jacob he is not god of the dead but god of the living this may sound like a hard word uh, what i'm about to say next but i really want you to try to consider it christ's return does not just happen at the end of a timeline because that's not how God works. Time and space answered to him. But it it happens to the whole timeline all at once, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they see the return of Christ as well. The resurrection, listen, the resurrection reorients everything and we will fully know what that looks like when Jesus comes back. To use some controversial words, we need to unhitch ourselves from rapture theology. It is a weak eschatology. No matter what verse that you try to appeal, some people also try to appeal to Enoch, which Enoch is a prophetic precursor to Christ. And I'm going to leave a link in the description of this episode that sort of explains that. Some people try to use the prophet Elijah as a form of rapture, but one person being taken up to heaven isn't doesn't mean that the whole church will. It, it, so I said it's a weak eschatology, and we can only make sense of the past, engage with people and ideas of the past to inform our present and our future when we have an, an eschatology that is truly rooted in scripture. We need to accept that the body of Christ transcends time. We are not just in the body of Christ with the believers of today, but with with believers of the past and future because Christ is timeless. We can't have this theology that throws out 1,800 years of Christian teaching, of historical Christian teachings of believers. A lot of this world is in the messed up state that it is because We refuse to accept and wade into the strangeness of the past, and we keep falling into cycles of the same mistakes over and over. 
we see the crap going on in the world. We see the crap going on here in the United States. And some of us think that the only way going forward is just to burn the whole thing to the ground and create create a new utopia. Not understanding that we take the diseases which decayed our previous nation and we carry them into the new nation that we try to create. This is partially because of our fallenness, but also because we fear what is strange to us and the past is strange and we also make it strange. But completely throwing off everything, throwing it all out, will only delay the inevitable. And it does not bring down the powers of this world in the way that we think. It'll just change which people run those powers. But a Christian approach to doing history rooted in a strong and hopeful eschatology reminds us of the agency that God has given to us after us being made in God's image. We have the agency through God's image and the leading of the Holy Spirit to try and make the future as good as possible. It doesn't need to be doom, gloom, and blood-colored moons. It's not going to be perfect, but until God declares that it is time for Christ to return, we have been called by God to walk in the trails that he blazes instead of trying to blaze trails for God and then expecting him to move in it, which I believe what dispensationalism tries to do. The future might not be Star Trek, the future isn't what I wish it to be, but it won't be anything good if we don't try to understand that we are looking in a dark mirror, that we don't fully understand if we don't try and comprehend what the past did well for us and what we can do from the past that will do well for the generations to come until Christ return. So that's it for this episode. Uh, let me give you my source materials. Once again, I use Kenneth J. Archer, a Pentecostal hermeneutic spirit, scripture, and community. Then I used uh, Mourning Becomes the Law. Mourning is to mourn when someone dies. It's Mourning Becomes the Law, Philosophy and Representation by Jillian Rose. Then I use Rowan Williams' Why Study the Past, The Quest for the Historical Church. I also use The Problem with Evangelical Theology, Testing the Exegetical Foundations of Calvinism, Dispensationalism, and Wesleyanism. Ben Witherington is a great scholar, by the way. Um, and then I used N.T. Wright's Surprise by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. And finally, uh, some... Lecture Notes on the Early Church by uh, Chris E.W. Green. So that is it for this episode. As I just said, um, I would like to invite you to please come and join the Facebook page. Recently, I just started a live streaming where I'll every Friday night I'll be doing a show called Holy Headlines, where I just offer a theological response to some of the biggest headlines of the week. I appreciate you listening in, and until you hear from me next time, God bless and keep learning.